Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. First of all, a massive thank you to all the people who have posted reviews on iTunes in the last week or so, including Loft Ligger, Stuart Mills in the Isle of Man, John Weir and Oscar HK who's listening in Asia. And a special hello to all of our international listeners, including our lone single listeners in Costa Rica, Ecuador, Fiji, Lithuania, Serbia, Antigua, Cape Verde, Palestine, the Faroe Islands, St Lucia, St Martin and Gambia. Why not find a friend and then we can have two people listening in each of those countries? Uh, if you are feeling nice, do post a review on iTunes or let us know what you think of the podcast and other topics you think we should cover in future episodes. Just email redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Right, down to business for this week. Delighted to be joined in the studio by Jane Merrick, Redbox columnist, who will ask if the royals are the ones to sort out politics. Redbox reporter Esther Weber on the extraordinary Lib Dem comeback. And can it last? But first, Alex Dawson, who worked for David Cameron first in number 10 before joining Theresa May in the Home Office and then later in Downing Street as her political director. He's got some advice for those who hope to replace his old boss. Well, as the campaign for the Tory leadership gets underway, there is more at play for the contenders than just hitting the right notes on Brexit. In fact, they want, if they want to govern well, as well as win well, the runners and riders need to secure support for their domestic vision too. So Alex, you've written a piece for uh, Red Box, which is going out on Wednesday, uh, which basically goes through what people thinking of and obviously there is no vacancy at the moment so any so it's all just speculation that anyone it's, might it's all be. just speculation apart <laughs> from it being confirmed by the prime minister a few weeks ago but. um and but what, what's interesting is you were there at the time when she was home secretary then uh, running to be prime minister and then went into down street so quickly and the lesson that you think should be learned from other people is you need to get your act together Particularly because, obviously, she thought she was going to have a long uh, summer campaign where firm up positions, maybe think through appointments, and it all happened very quickly. Yeah, well, I mean, at the time of the Brexit vote coming through on the 24th of June, I think everything was a little bit kind of behind really where uh, it should have been, where a lot of the other competitors were. Um, I mean, she'd always been very, very coy about her leadership uh, ambitions and there was not really so much of the, well if the ball pops out the back of the scrum, you know, I'll go and run with it that's not a very TM thing to say and obviously <laughs> she um, uh, she always tries to sort of do what she says and says what she does frankly there hadn't really been a huge amount of preparation in place 24th of June to 13th of July we go through this extremely light turbocharged leadership election campaign where 
fundamentally, I think everyone thought we were going to be there for two months and sort of trawling around the country and, you know, doing all the kind of meetings and greetings and rallies and hustings with, um, you know, various members of the Conservative Party, in which case there would be a load of stuff um, dropped out by the campaign in terms of domestic policy and Brexit policy, but which ended up actually being the first set of announcements for her premiership. Uh, and I think, frankly, that loss of, sort of two months meant that we didn't really test and prove a lot of the things that were going to go on to become her domestic agenda and become her Brexit agenda, which would have at least given sight to both the party and then also journalists and the country at large about what Theresa May was about. And really, after that point, you're always playing catch up. And in particular, on the Brexit side, and we... Uh We've talked about this on the podcast before, but some of those very early decisions, like creating a Department for International Trade, basically confirmed that we were going to leave the customs union. You know, and decisions made in 48 hours of going into number 10 actually have had a long-lasting impact yeah. on, on the government since. Yeah, and I mean, those, those um, you know, the creation of a Brexit department, the creation of an international trade department were going to be the subject of announcements during the campaign. Uh, or, you know, I heavily suspected that that was where we were going with it. And that would have at least allowed opportunity, at least for the party to agree that that was the way that we were going, that we were going to be leaving the customs union, at least to have a little bit more of a debate about, you know, fundamentally what our future trade policy was going to be after we've left a major trading bloc. Now, of course, at that time, the debate was all about immigration and how you kind of get control of immigration in return for, uh, you know, access for the single market. Um, and that really kind of lasted in for quite a long time in government, and maybe that would not have been the case had there been uh, a longer election campaign. And do you think that had that election campaign happened against Andrew Leadsom, and Andrew Leadsom, we assume, would have been advocating a harder Brexit, Theresa May then defeating that would have given her more room to pursue the sort of compromising Brexit, which was probably... You know, she then had to basically overprove herself to be a hard Brexiteer, if you like. Uh, yeah, I think that there's definitely, um, I think that's definitely the case where it kind of, you've had the argument, you've had it out, and so you're in a position then to kind of push your case. And I think for David Cameron, you know, beating David Davis, you know, an avowed moderniser, winning on a modernising platform, that allowed him to sustain himself through five quite difficult years in opposition, and then for a, you know quite a long period in time of period of time in government. Uh, doing things that, you know, possibly upset some of the party activists and the party grassroots. But he could kind of credibly claim that he had a mandate for it. And Jane, just thinking about previous leadership contests, like the David Cameron one, you know, David Cameron and Michael Gove and George Osborne had been thinking about this stuff and where they were on issues for a long time, the same as Tony Blair before uh, he became Labour, you know, spent a long time thinking about policy positions and what you would do if you did get in charge. And in a way, the fact that Theresa May didn't do that work and going straight into government rather than being a leader of opposition who then gets to do some of some of that sort of work in public yes. ends up having an impact then on, on the premiership. Yeah, and I think what was what the benefit for Cameron, actually, in that leadership contest, was there was a, he, a really long run-in, because it wasn't just a sort of leadership contest itself. There was Michael Howard announcing that he wasn't going to sort of fight beyond, stand beyond 2005. It allowed people like Cameron to come forward. 
And I think what I think it's actually um, quite worrying that we're going to have this the sort of pho- this phony contest now, which will become a real contest. It's going to be so dominated by Brexit. I think you raise a really good point that what kind of prime minister are we going to have beyond Brexit? What kind of country are we going to have? What are the policies, the sort of domestic agenda? that this new prime minister is going to talk about. And I think that we're so obsessed with Brexit that the Tory party is going to choose somebody, either hard or soft Brexit or remain, which is unlikely, without really kind of, we need to kick the tyres on what their other policies are going to be. Yeah, I mean, like, it's obviously early days still with this kind of phony contest. But I do kind of think from... Because we've heard Matt... Hancock already said, like, we need to think beyond Brexit, whoever leads the party next. I don't really have a sense from any of them at the moment what their kind of, like, burning passion is, or, like, what are the wrongs at the moment that they think need to be righted. Like, we haven't really heard any kind of big agenda coming forward yet. And I think the problem is, at the moment, people are still judging them, mainly for their position on Brexit. As much as we want to move away, we can't. (laughs) In fact, the only domestic news we get from them is our own domestic arrangements at home. They've been wheeling out wives and children in kitchens and horses. (laughs) This is an attempt to kind of provide distinction from the rest of the field. And I think Mm. that, you know, a lot of the, the people in this room all follow politics for a living in some way or the other. I found it difficult to keep up with all the stuff that was in the papers over the weekend from the various leadership contenders. So, you know, at the moment, they're all kind of going down the domestic side and trying to kind of, you know, in some cases, use that as sort of, uh, you know, neutralising attempt on some of the negative perceptions about them. Uh, But frankly, in order to uh, deliver buy-in, as Esther said, for their agenda, they're going to have to kind of come up with something a bit more distinctive on domestic policy away from Brexit that actually gives them a bit of a toehold in the party and in Parliament and in the country to an extent for them to actually argue what a Tory government is for after nine years of Tory government. Mm. And this is going to be the biggest challenge for them. I, I thought just just on the sort of um, the coverage of Dominic Raab in particular at the weekend with his wife and their designer kitchen, I think it was sort of, it backfired slightly because it was designed to sort of show him as a sort of ordinary family man and not so sort of, you know, he's he's got this quite sort of, I suppose... I don't, I don't know what the kind of image that, that we don't really know much about him and is he slightly weird? But actually it came across as kind of one of those, you know, like an interior design magazine. <laughs> um, and they've sort of, they, it was almost too forced. There was no sort of nothing natural. There was no kind of bottle of fairy liquid. It was like David Cameron on steroids. It was so staged <laughs> that you yeah. couldn't see where is the reality? You know, where is the sort of, well, Ed Miliband's kitchen. I mean, I know we're obsessed with kitchens in politics almost, but Ed Miliband's kitchen where they used the second kitchen because they couldn't bear to have any kind of a scruff. We, we need a bit of scruffiness and messiness in politics yeah. to show the reality. Well, I have to say, I, having had a Times photographer around to take a photo of me in my kitchen, <laughs> they do tidy up. It is entirely possible that Dominic Raab... I couldn't believe that was your kitchen. No, I know, actually, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and then they cut it out, in the, so it was just a cut out of me and my gym jams anyway. So they went to all that trouble to take a photo of our kitchen and it never even appeared in the magazine. But it's, it's, maybe Dominic Raab does live in filth normally and it was just a time, Sunday Times photographer who, uh, Possibly. who came because out and cleared it. There's a premium at the moment on authenticity in our mm. politics because everything's very short-term and transactional. Mm. So it's like, how do you project authenticity? And do we think sort of doing a spread in the Sunday Times is going to do that for the country at large? It will probably help for... Westminster and for Conservative MPs who, you know, read the national press at 
great length and kind of great extent. But actually, there's going to at some point they're all going to have to find something that cuts through to the country itself. Um, David Cameron had that, albeit not you know in the course of the leadership campaign, but in the mm. sort of the first hundred days afterwards when he was pictured with a couple of huskies on some glacier in Norway and Svalbard. Um, and and I suppose it's kind of but that was built on top of a wider agenda and a wider policy agenda. Yeah, there was there was there was background to it, wasn't it? And I think if you're not you're going to be yourself in politics, you're going to get found out really quickly. Yeah. And I think that if you know this is the real Dominic Raab, then fine. But and, and I think the that kind of photo shoot with the wife begins to feel quite old fashioned. Mm. It feels like we're almost kind of ready to get over that kind of presentation and maybe move towards something more informal um, or possibly not even be photographed with your wife. Yes. <laughs> Who knows? Well, I mean, that is true. The, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's wife doesn't come out at the end of party conference speeches. That whole sort of, you know... It's a choice. Yeah. And just finally, to what extent do you think we go through these sort of spasms of, you know, there was Tony Blair was followed by Gordon Brown and it was each was a reaction to the one before and Theresa May was in part a reaction to David Cameron and quite early on there was a determination not to do things that seemed like a Cameron thing. So do we now pivot to someone who is a bit more gregarious, a bit more sort of personally open and... I, I mean, I suspect so, yeah. I think there's kind of, I think as you say, every every leader sort of tries to correct and possibly overcorrect on the perceived failings of the leader before them. Uh, and you will see someone who's going to be you know, potentially sort of try and do a lot more kind of optimism, gregariousness, you know, we'll try and focus on stuff outside of Brexit maybe a bit more. But, I mean, that's also what Theresa May kind of wanted to do. And whatever these people, you know, whoever wins, they're going to find that they inherit actually quite the same situation as Theresa May has. And this is why they need to plan now, because they've got to work out how they get out of the quicksand of you know, Brexit debates in Parliament where you've got a very, very non-existent majority um, and whether you do that with or without a general election, with or without a referendum and where you can genuinely build consensus within the Conservative Party and then Parliament about a domestic agenda outside of um, outside of Brexit. And what about, the, just finally before we move on, what about the criticism which I've, I have made in the past that actually part of the problem with Theresa May is that she didn't really believe in anything before. She was very good at doing her job at the Home Office but she wasn't like Michael Gove might be in one department but thinking about how to do something, you know, she wasn't thinking about schools and NHS reform or the environment and she doesn't have that broader interest in policy and politics. So you may expect me to say this as someone who used to work for her, but That's I why do, you're here. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> um, I do really think that she does believe in things. She's got a wide appreciation of public policy outside of just the Home Affairs brief. I think what she's always... Um, struggled with is communicating that and I think it's one of these things where you know still waters run deep there's a huge amount kind of going on it's just actually sort of articulating it and then partly because of the lack of preparation it's like putting in place the organizational kind of heft and musculature to actually deliver it has been the problem uh, yeah well, it's fascinating, and we'll um, no doubt talk about uh, Tory leadership um, contenders in the coming weeks. But let's move on. It's not often we say this. Let's talk about the Lib Dems. This is Esther <laughs> Webber. So after the staggering election results last week, it would be easy to be seduced by talk of a Lib Dem fight back. Uh, when, to some extent, they are reverting to their role as a protest sponge. And also they're climbing back from what was a very low point 
in the 2015 locals and then the 2017 general. But their clear stop Brexit branding is currently putting Change UK to shame and if that continues in the European elections they could punch above their weight yet again as long as the fight for the future of Brexit drags on. Nice this the results for the Lib Dems making was it seven hundred and fifty odd gain net gains were even better than what they anticipated. They sort of surprised themselves. Yes, I heard from a rather overexcited and tired Lib Dem press officer on Friday who told me there had been a sweepstake in their office and the highest bet which everyone had laughed at was five a net gain of five hundred. They obviously massively exceeded that. Um, So I think they did surprise themselves. But we know that that's something they are good at and they still obviously retain institutional memory of kind of fighting those really local campaigns. And then in certain places, this was bolstered by their really clear message, which is a vote for the Lib Dems was a vote for Remain and neither of the two bigger parties could say what their message was. Although it was interesting that they also did pretty well in some quite Brexity places as well. Yeah. My, you know, in the, I know the West Country best, they came back in loads of areas yeah. where, which they, you know, they used to be strong. The coalition had sort of wiped them out, the West Country had turned blue it was very Brexity, but they, they still seem to come back. So it's slightly re establishing themselves in those areas where they used to be the alternative to the Tories, where the Labour Party don't really exist. Yeah, that was... It's another, not OK to vote Lib Dem again. That, that was another pattern that, um, that they did very well in Tory Lib Dem marginal mm. areas, which must be making some Tory MPs feel a bit fearful, kind of places like St Albans, Winchester... Uh, Oxfordshire, like these kinds of places where there is a heavy Remain constituency. Um, and But then also, as I think Mary Cray, who's the Labour MP for Wakefield, pointed out today, uh, taking votes in some very traditional Labour areas. Um, and therefore, I think they're finding it a bit strange that the message that uh, the Conservatives and Labour have taken away is that we need to get on with Brexit as soon as possible. <laughs> it's amazing that everyone is taking a message from the local election results. They're just all different messages. Yes, uh, as as you would expect. They, <laughs> they have all said this proves that they're taking exactly the right approach. Yes, yeah. uh, so, unfortunately, it doesn't really move us any further forward with our little look. Jane, were you surprised by the scale of the Lib Dem fight back? I was, actually, but not completely shocked because looking at the um, press conference that Vince Cable did last week, before the local elections, I think it was on the launching their Euro campaign, they were, he was really clear, and it was like the old Vince Cable back again. Sort of during during the 2010 election campaign, he was the star. Right before it was sort of Nick Clegg, he was the one who was attracting all the um, attention. He had real charisma. I think sort of there was a, a debate, wasn't there, about whether Vince should be able to join Nick Clegg on the campaign trail? Well, no, in fact, because I, I 
recently was going back through some old cuttings from that election campaign and it, they were both on the bus. Yes. And it was only after the Clegmania TV debates happened that Vince started being dropped from visits because they thought that Nick Clegg could, could yes. sustain a visit on his own. Yes, exactly. Sort of and, and, and Vince was the kind of, yeah, he was the real star, whereas yeah. Clegg was sort of the bland one. And actually, it's, it's I think, you know, they have they suffered a massive brand um, dent after after the coalition, and I, I was wondering whether that's, there is still some of that remains, and a lot of it is sort of you know Brexit voters staying away last week, and they're going to turn out at the Euros in, in two weeks' time. But also, there is still this sort of sense that they're being so much clearer than Change UK that they're just basically saying we are the the Remain party. And what's ironic is that ten years ago, the Lib Dems used to be the party which would say one thing one end of the country in, in sort of you know metropolitan areas, and another thing in, in sort of southwest for example and in now it is they are the party that is being really clear and it's Labour that's being saying one thing at one end of the country and one end of the other and I think what voters ultimately want is clarity they want real clarity on things they don't really want sort of you know uncertainty especially at the moment they want something a, some, a party that says what they're going to do what, what have you made of this Alex having seen uh, the Lib Dems in all their ups and downs all glory yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a very, very Lib Dem thing to do to get absolutely hammered in 2015 and 2017 and then kind of spring back up. But, I mean, frankly, the conditions for them are good. You know, while they always did sort of, you know, promise even in a referendum in 2007 to appeal to voters down oh, in the yeah. southwest and, you know, Somerton and Froome and all these places, yeah. um, uh, they are actually kind of... They've, they've always been pretty pro-EU. The... Um, Brexit referendum has allowed them to really lean into being pro-EU. It has found them a voice in parts of the country where actually they normally had to hide that sort of thing. They're very, very organisationally capable. They've mm -hmm. kind of got sort of a longevity of campaigners and MPs who've sort of been in the Lib Dems for life and it's going to take more than a few kind of massacres at local and general elections to kind of put them off. So they've kind of got the infrastructure there that Change UK don't have. Uh, and also, you've got to remember, in a low turnout election, which is what local elections always are, getting your vote out is going to be a premium, especially when uh, Tories, Labour uh, are struggling kind of to do that. And I think this is also why we've seen, you know, the Greens do a very good job at the local elections and also why we've seen kind of the rise of, you know, Ashfield independence, for example. Um, and that's always going to be, you know, that's always going to be a valuable thing for a yeah. local campaign. And I think Jane touched on something which is really important, which is that uh, this kind of was able to test the strength and direction of the Remain vote, but the Leave vote wasn't really tested uh, because the Brexit party wasn't standing and UKIP only stood uh, a much lower number of councillors before. Um, and so I think it's entirely possible that we get very different messages from the European elections and that that just kind of cements what the whole problem is, that the longer we go on without a compromise, um, the repertoires of uh, really strong leavers and really strong remainers on both sides is just going to become more entrenched. And Alex, when you were working in government alongside the Lib Dems, did you, did anybody think that you were quietly killing them off to, um, to quite the extent that? 
well, ended up being the case. I think uh, everyone was surprised at the extent of the victory in 2015 and yeah. thought, well, Lib Dems are sticky. You know, they are solid in their local area. Um, if, if anything kind of killed them off, it wasn't so much the Conservatives, I think, on the Conservative side, they would argue, it would be, well, they made a load of promises that they then not just kind of sort of kind of didn't keep but they sort of really went back on with a vengeance over tuition fees um i think for you know the conservatives at that time very canny in placing the blame at all the compromises and the tricky things that uh, politics involves on coalition and they managed to run a change argument actually in 2015 saying if you want to get rid of politicians not keeping their promises you need to vote conservative so you get a straight absolute majority there uh, and they can deliver on the promises and sort of affect all those changes. Now, that kind of sort of leaning into a little bit of anti-politics has kind of then caused where we are now, yeah. where there's absolutely no premium for any party in working together. Uh, there isn't really much space for politicians to kind of stand up and say, look, these are just some difficult decisions that we've got to take. You know, let's go and do it, follow me, and it will be worth it because people saw just how difficult it was for the Liberal Democrats after 2015. But it's sort of fascinating that a couple of months ago we were talking about Change UK didn't want to have anything to do with the Lib Dems because they were a solid brand and they wanted to you know, strike out on their own. And now sort of the Lib Dems seem to be doing better. It will be fascinating to see what happens in the um, European elections as to who does better. But the Lib Dems have shown that they know how to fight elections. We'll talk. Well, I don't know. Maybe we won't talk more about the Lib Dems in future weeks. It depends if they well, carry on. There's a leadership contest to come. Oh, of course. So. I, was, I discovered this this morning when I was writing the Red Box email. Only one Lib Dem MP doesn't have any odds on Ladbrokes mm. to become the next leader. <laughs> Who's Cri- that? Christine Jardine. Oh. Even Tim Farron has got odds, but yeah, not Christine. Anyway, that's one for a pub quiz. A really terrible pub quiz. <laughs> um, in a moment, we'll talk about the Royals. We'll be back after this short break. 
The arrival of the seventh in line to the throne may be a nice distraction from Brexit, but actually more directly, Prince Charles is in Germany today to give a speech appealing for both countries to redouble our commitment to each other and to the ties between us. So the good thing about a royal baby is it does give us a slight break from uh, talking about Brexit. Even though we don't know, I don't think at this exact point as we're sitting here, we know what, even what the baby's called, but we're all still no. very excited about um, his existence. I think the point you make about what Prince Charles is doing, and actually he's been to Germany like 30 times or something since he's been to Prince of Wales. Yes. The royals spreading out around the world, trying to say, look, no, come on, we can still be friends, honestly. Does seem to be the you know, and then we send politicians who just go and cause trouble. Yes, I mean it's it's really easy. It's it's very easy to get distracted by the royal baby. And actually, there was an excellent Morton Moreland cartoon in the Times last week showing the prime minister cr- crouching under a desk and on the phone to the emergency services and the operator saying what. Um, what emergency service do you require? And she's saying, royal baby, because it's, it would have obviously deflected completely from their disastrous local election results. And I think there, there is sort of these moments, they do cause a sort of um, a nice distraction for politicians because they can sort of help the country feel slightly better about itself, maybe. But then the the obverse to that is, of course, in, in, the, in 2011, we had the royal wedding, which was supposed to be the, you know, the big royal wedding of the, of the decade. But then after that, sort of the country still felt pretty terrible. We had riots in the summer. We had a huge political debate about cuts. So it doesn't really, I think it takes the edge off for a couple of days. So I think if, if Theresa May is looking for a honeymoon, a sort of baby honeymoon from this, it's going to last about 48 hours. But actually, more importantly, they, they do, I think, you know, we need the royal family or British politics needs the royal family in the sense that they sort of, the Queen in particular has often sort of helped to guide the debate slightly particularly on Brexit and on the Scottish referendum when she was, was walking into a church and she said to a random passerby who said, you know, good morning, ma'am. And she sort of, you know, very heavily said, I think people need to really think very carefully about the future. <laughs> this sort of extraordinary, exclusive world, exclusive interview that this random well-wisher got. Um, and I think she said something similar in January um, when she said that she hoped that, that people would reach towards a common ground and I think they have this sort of role where they're sort of it, it, it's as um, Bage said in the 19th century that you have to sort of be they have to be seen to be believed but actually they have they do have a kind of role which is above politics but still yet guiding our politics and I think what Charles is doing today is he's reminding Germany actually that, that there is a huge bond that stretches back to his great 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 grandparents um, with Prince Albert who's having bicentennial this year um but also there are so many so many sort of links that will still exist after brexit and i think there, there is a sort of a really important role that they're playing i would say that it's it's interesting that he's making this important speech now when it would have been better maybe a year ago when the sort of negotiations were still at their peak i i would maybe beg to differ slightly from jane just because i think um yeah, we, we get maybe these kind of brief moments of national unity. Um, but the problem is with what the Queen said about Scottish independence and remarks they've been interpreted as being about Brexit is they haven't worked. <laughs> no one's coming back together even when the Queen says it. Yeah. What about you, Alex? What, so one of the things that, that sort of has happened maybe every six months is that we, we look like the Queen is basically going to be dragged into the Brexit debate Yeah, and there's huge nervousness both in the Palace and in Whitehall about that happening. I mean not least you know if the idea of the Commons passed a law to stop Brexit, could the Prime Minister recommend to the Queen that she, she doesn't sign it off? And, yeah. 
Is, is that is that sense of nervousness about dealing with the palace? Well, yeah, you don't want to really get the Queen involved. I mean, she's done I don't know how many Prime Ministers now, but you don't want to be the one who has to kind of smash the glass and say, in emergency, get the Queen out. <laughs> um, uh, and I think kind of... Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's, there's always a great scepticism about how long any kind of baby moon would last in terms of royal babies, royal weddings, etc., um, I think for, for a lot of people in Whitehall and a lot of people in Westminster, the, the royal family and especially kind of this latest generation that's come through are a fantastic advertisement for the UK um, and can do a lot in selling Britain abroad. But, you know, the part the kind of the function of our constitutional monarchy is that actually they don't get involved and they kind of leave it to the politicians to kind of sort it out and decide. And anything that really breaches that is going to be very, very difficult quite rightly for um, both the palace and Whitehall and I think even people who sort of argue that maybe the Queen should step in will you know, think twice if they think through the implications of what that means I think the main gift from this government to the Queen has been um, not getting her out for a Queen's speech anytime <laughs> soon <laughs> no dragging you down it's yeah, a of... gift for the Queen yeah. as well yeah quite oh. I mean, even, although, was it the last one that she did where she wore a blue outfit with yellow flowers yes. on a hat yeah. which apparently was a clear signal that she'd yeah. come dressed <laughs> as the EU flag yeah. um, uh, and what about Alex because David Cameron used to keep getting into trouble because he keep talking about talking to the Queen Yeah, she purred after the Scottish referendum results uh, he did it. I can't believe he did it again on, on something else. Um, it's something. Uh, there was something about anti-corruption. I think I remember. Yes, there that's was an right. Anti-corruption. Yeah, it was. He, he said something dark in front of some cameras in Buckingham Palace. Um, is it a sort of a big no-no? Sort of tried to speak to the Prime Minister about their chats with the. Uh, yeah, and Great. I mean, de- uh, you know, sort of definitely with TM because she takes this. You know, not a surprise. No, not not a known gossip. No, no not a known <laughs> gossip. You know, that was part of her leadership pitch. Yeah. That I don't go around bars gossiping. She's certainly not going to go around gossiping about, you know, what the Queen says. Mm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's very much, you know, she she would disappear on a Wednesday afternoon to kind of go to the palace. Obviously, you've got to get there bang on time. So that's a hard cut off for a lot of the meetings and number ten. Um, and you know, she. She doesn't say anything about it, uh, and I think I think it might possibly be still an offence almost to kind of relay details about what conversations you've had with the Queen. So, just as well, Gavin Williamson isn't Prime Minister then. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> yeah. He uh, strenuously <laughs> denies on his children's lives uh, that it was nothing to do with him. Um, and what about just talk us through that? So, so. She goes off on her own. It must be like one of the only meetings where the Prime Minister is in the room with only one other person. Yeah, she goes off on her own. The PPS goes with her and sort of, I think, sits outside waiting to then sort of take her back to um, back to number 10. And, it, yeah, it's, it, it's one of these few things where the Prime Minister is kind of has an individual one-on-one relationship with someone over a long extended period of time. You know, there will sometimes be private words with uh, cabinet ministers or whatever but you know that is for the functioning of the office I think for prime ministers it must be a thing where you have one individual who you know won't leak, is going to outlast you you know, hopefully um, and uh, you know I, I do wonder sort of how much actually they sort of feel that 
they can say what's really on their mind and what they're really thinking and kind of seek a little bit of counsel. But also the Queen must have, must. I mean, she's been through so many Prime Ministers, she must be able to sort of, she will be speaking her mind. And I think given that Theresa May was very deferential to the Queen when she first became Prime Minister, sort of that really low curtsy. Very low curtsy. She probably does listen to what the Queen is yeah. saying. And you do wonder whether, I mean, who, you know, we're obviously wildly speculating, whether the Queen is, you know, comes across as a bit of a soft Brexiteer to me, whether the Queen has sort of slightly put um, lead in the Prime Minister's pencil to sort of keep her on this, the same track. I don't know. But there was a whole play, wasn't there? Was it called The Audience? The Audience, With, yes. with Mirren, which it, it, was a, it was amazing, but obviously all completely imagined. It was yes. just conversations with the Queen and, and all of the Prime Ministers of her reign. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, actually, that the Queen, one of the things she's known for is being a great survivor and this kind of stalwart that everyone uh, knows as a constant and maybe May is kind of modelling herself Mm -hmm. a little bit on that. But also just a sense presumably that you can go and see someone who isn't after your job Mm. you know which the current Prime Minister probably more than most is surrounded by people desperate for a job uh, and can talk through problems and know it's not going to go any further and if the response is, "Oh, don't worry about that. This is ha- you know, this is the, this comes, this happens all the time," and give it a week, and it will have blown over. Mm. Sometimes that's just what must must be what you need to get through the week. Yeah, I don't think we've ever, ever had a whole conversation about um, something we know absolutely nothing about before. <laughs> <laughs> Although some of the listeners that's might beg to differ. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. Huge thanks to Jane, uh, to Alex and to Esther. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you listen so you don't miss any future episodes. And sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But now for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs>